Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, November 28th, 2020. Right now, once again, it is Wednesday morning, and we have our friend TruthVids here with us to present the next portion of his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. Hello, TruthVids. Thank you for being here once again. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, this week I thought it'd be great if we went on to the mistranslations of the Bible and also simply misunderstandings of certain words. They don't necessarily prove that the Israelites were white, but they back up all the other proofs. And if you have that understanding, the Bible actually starts to make sense, right? Judeo-Christianity really doesn't make that much sense when you actually examine scripture. Um, so I pray that this is the best way we could do it. I thought the best way would be to start with all the reoccurring words that come through the Old Testament and the New Testament over and over again and are horrendously mistranslated or misunderstood. And then next week we could go for the individual verses that are here and there throughout Scripture where obviously there was a cover-up to try and uh, obscure the true meanings. But um, here it's going to be the the really major ones, such as Gentiles, etc. So, so yeah, I hope we can get into this. I really look forward to this, Bill. Well, well right. These mistranslations are systemic in that they are based on a universalist interpretation of Scripture. And they've really tried to change the language of, of Scripture through these selected mistranslations. And, and doing so, that they've created a lie out of the New Testament. And they've, to a great extent, created a lie out of the Old Testament by, by these mistranslations. That this word Gentiles or heathen for goyim, which just means nations, and that they sometimes in the Old Testament it's nations, and sometimes in the Old Testament it's heathen, and sometimes in the Old Testament it's Gentiles. It's heathen where it can be demonstrated that it's speaking of the Israelites, even in some places, that, that the, the mistranslations or, or the way they translated these terms that these single words into three or four different words at different times, it, it's just subjective. And it's based on their doctrine and, and their imagination rather than on just following the language. Yeah, it, and, and a lot of it goes back to the context of when these words were said, people then would understood what they mean, right? But then if you look back uh, centuries or thousand years later, you can try and take it out of context and say, oh, no, he meant this. But nations, he's clearly speaking to Pacific nations. And generally, it's always the lost tribes, the dispersed Israelites that it's referring to, right? Right. And, and this Gentiles, it, it's, the, um, it's a made-up word. It doesn't belong in English. It's a Latin word that was brought into English for one purpose, the translation of the King James New Testament. I don't know if the Geneva Bible uses the term. I probably should have checked, 
for this um for this presentation perhaps i can check perhaps i can check briefly if if i um if i could get bible works at the geneva bible up 1599 i, I know this is a well i believe it was um jerome who first uh put the word in right gentiles but that but it is a latin word and it was a latin translation so so for him you know you know you it, it might not have been um you know, he might not have done it for a bad reason. Um, if he understood that the nations were the same race as the Israelites, then perhaps he chose the word Gentiles because it made sense in that context that the apostle traveled to the Gentiles, the people of the same race. But over time, obviously, the, the Jews um, corrupted the meaning to non-Jew. The word Gentiles, it, it doesn't appear in the singular in the Geneva Bible, but it appears in the plural 135 times in, in 135 different verses. And that's even a few more times than it appears in the King James Version. So, and, and we'll be discussing that. It, it's the Gentile, okay, the Geneva Bible was translated, I, I believe for the first time, the first published publication was in the 1560s i might be mistaken that's about 50 years before the king james version perhaps and and the more popular edition was 1599 which is only 12 years perhaps before the king james version so so the geneva bible the, the king james was actually a response to the geneva bible from what i understand the King James didn't like all the language of it. The, the English didn't like all the language of it. And and they actually made a version that was more amenable to the structure of the Anglican Church. So there's a lot of mistranslations or, or misconceptions of the meanings of terms, purposeful or otherwise, in the English translations of the Bible that were basically employed in order to support church doctrine and the church doctrine of the time was universalist it it was not reflecting of, of a fulfillment of the words of the prophets that christ had come to uphold and that the apostles did uphold in all of their epistles and it it supported the structure of the church of the empirical Anglican Church or or Roman Catholic Church, but which the Anglican Church was an English version of what the Roman Catholics had set up. Well, that's not the church structure that was left to us by the apostles of Christ. So it, it's there's lots of problems with English translations and and lots of words that are systematically. Um, nuanced in in their understanding and gen, gentiles is one of them we have this idea of the meaning of the word gentiles that doesn't fit either the greek word from which it's translated or the hebrew word from which it's translated or the original meaning of the term gentilis in latin and and we'll discuss that i, I don't know if you have anything else before i go on to that discussion I was just going to say that um, once you realize all these mistranslations, you can see how the, you know, Christianity got corrupted, how people fall for these, you know, uh, wrong teachings, 
how the Jews trick us, and you can realize that the true meaning meaning of Christian identity, right? It all begins to make sense. You you see through it all, and hopefully you come to the same understanding that that we have the the true Christianity, the ones the apostles originally spread, right? Absolutely. And and once you understand how the apostles were spreading Christianity, where they were spreading it to, and why they were spreading it to those people. And they tell us all those things. Paul of Tarsus and 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 Luke, who who was a um, a longtime partner of Paul of Tarsus in the gospel, Luke in the book of Acts, recording words and actions of Paul and and also of Peter, and Peter in his epistles and Paul, of, which one of them we'll discuss here, and and Paul of Tarsus, in his epistles they proved over and over again that they were fulfilling the words of the prophets whereby they were bringing the quote-unquote lost sheep or scattered Israelites who had in fulfillment of prophecies become many nations that they were bringing those people back to God through Christ and that is the promise of the new covenant for the house of Israel and the house of Judah fulfilled. Christian identity is an understanding of the words of the prophets, the background history, and the actions of the apostles, which were aimed at fulfilling the words of those prophets. It's very simple. And and it makes perfect sense once you read it all and understand it. It's the only way that the Bible is true that Christ came to fulfill the words of the prophets. In other words, to execute them, to carry them out, not to destroy the prophets. Judeo-Christianity destroys the prophets. It, it, it makes their words meaningless, absolutely meaningless. <coughs> okay. This term, Gentile, is it really Gentiles or is it nations? And the Hebrew word goy, and, and I know that's a word that is kicked around today in modern vernacular, but it's actually an innocent Hebrew term. It means nation. The Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew lexicon, it's one of the more popular modern Hebrew lexicons. It's based on a volume that was originally prepared by Jesenius, Jesenius's Hebrew English lexicon is um, probably 150 years old or close to it, I don't really remember. But the Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew lexicon defines goy as one, a nation or people, two, a nation or, or people, I'm, I don't know why they have that. 1A, usually of non-Hebrew people, and, and that's not true. And 1A2, of descendants of Abraham. Now, now we're getting closer because the promise to Abraham was that his seed would become many nations. And as I was saying, often in, in, in the scriptural narrative, right, of any, in the historical narrative of any nation, when it refers to other nations or tribes of people, it's going to say the nations, the nations, right? And, and that's just normal. 
that that's just a normal discourse for any nation. So the Hebrews writing internally these documents of scripture, when they refer to the other countries around them, the other tribes of people around them, they're just going to say the goyim, meaning the nations, and that's fine, but there's promises in the Bible, and 1A2 in, in the Brown Driver Briggs lexicon, it says of descendants of Abraham, meaning that they were promised to become many nations, and then 1A3 in, in their definition of Israel, because Jacob was promised to inherit the blessing of Abraham, and the seed of Abraham would become many nations, primarily through Jacob would the promises be carried on, where the other descendants, the other sons of Abraham were sort of pushed out of the way and relegated to a different status, the promises would be fulfilled through Jacob Israel. So his seed would have become many nations. And, and then the word goy is used of a swarm of locusts, a, a nation or tribe of locusts, and that's fine. The Greeks use their term for nation in the same manner. And, and then it could refer to groups of other animals, right? Tribes or swarms or, or, or whatever word you have for whatever particular species it, in a collection, like a gaggle of geese, right? So it would be a goy of geese, a nation of geese, right? And, and then at the very end of their definition, they have the word goyim, which is plural, with a question mark. So, so they're like, I, I don't know why they put that question mark there, but then it says equals nations. Well, that's true. The plural of, of goy is goyim, G-O-Y-I-M in English, and, and that would be nations, and, and it's an innocent word. It has no negative connotation at all in Scripture. It, it could be a goy of, of the descendants of Israel, or it could be a goy of another race or another tribe. It doesn't matter, or animals, right? It doesn't matter. It's an innocent word, which means nation. So, so, so Bill, do you think um, that this shows that these translators often had a universalist mind and they were trying to make sense of it where, where you can see a little bit of confusion that the way for example we had uh, non-hebrew people well well the universalist mindset crept into christianity in the second century a.d or maybe even in the late first century a.d and that universalist mindset has has actually caused a corruption of Christian doctrine in the second century, where the apostles taught the fulfillment of the words of the prophets in the people of Europe, the Christianity that came out of Alexandria in Egypt and out of Samaria in, in, in the person of men like Justin Martyr, that Christianity didn't teach the fulfillment of the prophets. That Christianity taught replacement theology. That meaning that believers would replace the Jews as God's people. And, and that was a very early corruption. So that mindset, that universalist mindset, was always organized and 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 an and organized portion and, and or an element of the organization of Christianity 
from the time that it's the, the version taught by the Alexandrians, Origen and Clement of Alexandria, and, and Eusebius, Eusebius of Caesarea, and, and Justin Martyr, by the time that they had been writing, that they were incorporating that universalist replacement theology into Christianity. And, and it's not part of apostolic Christianity. It's not in the original language of scripture. They want us to believe that by taking this word nations and translating it at, as Gentiles, a word that has a different meaning in English. What's a Gentile? Somebody that's not a Jew. And, and that will be the, the, the answer, I would bet, among 99.9% .9 of church-going denominational Christians, that a Gentile is a non-Jew, and that's just a lie. So a Goy is a nation. And in the Brown Driver Briggs lexicon, Gentile is not even part of their definition for the word Goy. It's not even there. But the word Goy or Goyim is translated as nation or nations 30 times in the King James Old Testament. And half of those times, it's in Isaiah. 15 times in Isaiah alone. Now, the Greek word, ethnos, means nation. It is translated 96 times as Gentile in the King James Version. On five other occasions, the word Helene, Helene actually means Greek. On five occasions, Helene is translated as Gentile, and that is completely dishonest. Now, according to Liddell and Scott, ethnos in earliest Greek writing meant a number of people living together, a company, a body of men, a band of comrades, a host of men of particular tribes. Of animals, just like the Hebrew word goy, it could mean swarms or flocks, a swarm of geese, a, a flock of birds or, or of cattle. Then later, after Homer, which is pretty early in Greek writing, actually. After Homer, the word ethnos meant nation or people. And even later, it meant foreign or barbarous nations opposed to Hellenes. Now, at Athens, it was used to describe clubs of non-Athenians. And in the Septuagint, according to Liddell and Scott, it was used to describe non-Jews, and, and that is a lie. That's not true because very often it was used to describe Israelites. First, there should be no Jews in the Septuagint, in the Old Testament, none. And we'll get into that a little later. But that word ethnos, they're lying in their definition. They're following church doctrine. And I don't believe that Liddell and Scott um, lied purposely. They certainly didn't. I believe they were honest men. And their, their work is excellent. But you have to determine when they're citing the scripture that they're not really following original Greek, classical Greek or Hellenistic Greek. They're only defining words when they cite the AV, which is the authorized version, the King James Version, or the Septuagint, they're citing the 
church understanding and translations of those books according to church understanding. So they, they say that in the Septuagint, it, it is used of non-Jews, and they give an example in the New Testament from Acts chapter 7 that it means Gentiles, used of Gentile Christians. And they cite Paul's epistle to the Romans chapter 15 in, in that same manner as another authority that Gentiles means non-Jews. Now, is that the truth in, in Acts chapter 15? In, in I'm, I'm sorry, in Romans chapter 15, in verse 27, it's certainly not true because Paul is really addressing Romans that he was he had already told were descended from the ancient Israelites and the seed of Abraham. So it's based on an entire misinterpretation of the book of Romans. And, and we we can we'll probably touch on that later in this presentation this evening also. So Liddell and Scott felt obligated to add to their definitions of words um, meanings that are found in the translations of Scripture, but that doesn't mean that those translations are always correct, and, and I would argue with that. Gentiles does not mean non-Jews in the Septuagint, as they say, because very often it refers to the children of Israel where you find the promises to, to Abraham and Jacob that their seed would become many nations, the same word is used, ethnos. So it can't mean non-Jews. Otherwise, it would never be used of, of Israelites or of the descendants of Abraham. So Liddell and Scott always give the definitions of words as they were interpreted in the King James Version and other English versions, but that does not mean that the apostles understood them in that manner. That does not mean that when the apostles wrote ethnos, they meant non-Jew or Gentile. Since ethnos appears approximately 150 times in the New Testament, it is often translated as nation or heathen. But heathen is also a quite subjective rendering. It's not always appropriate. As a digression, in the Latin scriptures, the word ethnos in scripture was often translated as gentilis, which is the Latin word which was borrowed into English as gentile. The Junior Classic Latin Dictionary, published by Wilcox Follett and Company in 1945, defined Gentilis as of the same clan or race. The New College Latin and English Dictionary by John C. Traubman defines Gentilis as family, hereditary, tribal, national, clansman, kinsman. That's what Gentile really means, somebody of the same clan or race. The word... Sorry, but I was just going to say, um, if it was Jerome who originally began using Gentilis, then you could understand why he put that word, that when it says, go to the nations, 
he he thought, oh, I'll, I'll, you know, nations is very unspecific. So I'll write Gentilis because that means nations of the same clan, the same race. Maybe that was what he was trying to do. And people took advantage of that. Uh, w- would you agree with that? Or do you think we just can't tell? Well, well, I think that it's very possible that Jerome's understanding of Latin was a lot different than the understanding of these words in the later medieval church. That is a strong possibility because Latin was transformed in, 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 in many ways in the later medieval church, especially the, the um, pronunciations of letters even changed from old Latin to medieval Latin. Where the C, the letter C became an S sound, like Sicily, but in Old Latin and in Greek, it is Sicily. It 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 should be or or Sicilia. It it should be a K sound instead of a the way that we pronounce a modern C, and and that affected many, many words. Um, Cilicia, which is a province in Anatolia, is really Calicia. So, I mean, that's only one example. That that intervocalic S in Jesus being pronounced like a Z, that, that's a recent innovation. That That's medieval Latin. That's not original Latin. It, it wouldn't be pronounced like a Z. It's an S. So, that there's many little changes, subtle changes, that happened to Latin in the medieval period, but I also believe that the the meanings of many words became misunderstood as well. Gentile cannot mean non-Jew if it refers to people of the same family or race, then we have to think about what that word Jew should mean, and we're going to get to that also. But I, I've never, I, I'm not really a student of Latin. I know some Latin because I took it for a year in high school, but, but that was 46 years ago, right? That, that was a while ago. That the, um, the Latin scriptures, I, I've always placed a secondary significance on them to the Greek scriptures. However, there are old Latin translations that predate Jerome. They're known to predate Jerome. Now, Jerome made the Vulgate, but that was not the first Latin translation of scriptures. It's obvious from archaeology and and the archaeology archaeology of documents that there are old Latin translations older than Jerome. And I'm not a student of those manuscripts to know whether or not the word gentilis was used, but I, I would bet that it was the word which is used. I, I would be inclined to believe that it was. I just don't have the resources at hand for a presentation like this in, in order to know. I would have to go do a separate study of those manuscripts, right? Or, or of what's available of them. Because even though it is known that these old Latin manuscripts existed, there are not a lot of examples of them in archaeology that that we, we know they're there, but there aren't, it, it's not like um, the Greek, the old Greek copies of scripture in all the codexes and, and the papyri fragments are far more numerous 
than surviving Latin examples. Let's put it that way. So Jerome, what was um, his Vulgate, was more or less his standardization of Latin scriptures, of, of translations of the scriptures into Latin. He sort of standardized it, and, and it was a long time before it became the official translation of the Roman Catholic Church. It didn't happen immediately. And, and that being said, this word gentilis in Latin actually describes somebody of the same family or race, somebody who's related to you as a clansman or a kinsman. Now, if we had that understanding of the word Gentiles, it would be better. It, it still wouldn't be perfect because there, there were people called Gentiles in the English translations who are not close blood relations, who were actually among those nations that, were, that, that Yahweh commanded the ancient Israelites to destroy. So that could also lead to mistakes, right? That, that could also lead to misunderstandings. I'm not sure if they're called gentilis in old Latin manuscripts, however. I, I would have to read the Latin, and, and I just don't have that kind of time to, to learn another language and to study a whole other group of manuscripts. Just need another 10 years, eh? Um, probably another 15, yeah. So, so while the Greek term ethnos does not bear the same meaning as gentilis, there must have been good reason why the Latin term gentilis was used of the nations which were to receive the gospel in spite of other Latin terms which can be used generally to describe any nations. There's the word populus, which refers to any nation or any people. There's the word natio, from which we, we get the English word nation from the Latin word natio, which describes any nation or any people. But they use this word gentilis, which really describes related nations and related people. So why did they do that? That, was, that must have been a conscious decision by early Latin translators of scripture. I can't answer why they did it. I, I can only postulate that there must have been a reason. You have three words. You have gentilis, you have populus, and you have nadio. Which one are you going to use? Why use gentilis? So I, I can only ask those questions. I can't answer them. But the promises to the patriarchs were that their seed would become many nations, many goyim. But that same word for nations in Hebrew is often translated as Gentiles, even in the Old Testament. And the method, this method of translation is subjective and it's dishonest, especially since Gentile is not an actual English word. It was brought into English and given a meaning which it never had in scripture or in its original language, which is Latin. Why did the English translators need in the 16th century to borrow a Latin word into English. Why did they need to do that in order to help understand a Hebrew word which simply means nation? There was no reason for them to do that. 
They should have just used the available English word since they're making a translation into English. Yeah, you know, I could make a translation of, of the Septuagint or the New Testament, and, and of course I didn't have to do it in the New Testament. But if the Septuagint has a much broader vocabulary, and there are some words, and especially some nouns, that, that are reflect the names of birds and, and reptiles and things like that, which are totally, the original meanings are totally lost to us today. So most of the English translators just guess that that word in the King James Version, which is translated as swan, have you ever seen a purple swan? No. Swans are white. I, I mean, I never saw a swan that was not white. Maybe it's different in England. Maybe you could answer that. <laughs> but No, that was still white, kind when, after kind, right? Right. The word, septu, the word for purple in Greek is, one word anyway, is perforous or perforous, right? So there's at least one or two places in the Old Testament where the Hebrew word that the English translators made into swan, if you look at the Greek translation of the Septuagint, I don't remember the exact word, but it's a bird, it, it's a bird which is purple because it has elements of that perforous word in its name. So swans aren't purple, but the, the maybe a flamingo. Yeah, yeah, or or a pelican, not not a pelican, a a um, wow, parrot. No, I I mean yeah, it could be a parrot. It it's the Hebrew word is tan shemeth in Leviticus eleven eighteen, and and the Greek word is porphyr porphyriona. Now that comes from that word porphyrus, which is purple. So the Septuagint translators around 3rd century BC thought that Tan Shemeth described a purple bird. So they translated it, Porphyriona, where the English translators just wrote swan. And, and they must have just guessed. that They had to have just guessed. The same word in Deuteronomy 416 in the Geneva Bible is translated as red shank, whatever a red shank is, R-E-D-S-H-A-N-K-E. So that's Englishmen writing in Geneva in Switzerland. That's the Geneva Bible was an English translation of the Bible, which was made in Switzerland because at the time it, it they would have been burned at the stake for it in, in England, right? that they would have been persecuted in England, like Tyndale was persecuted for his earlier Bible. So red shank in the Geneva Bible becomes a swan in the King James Version, but it's a purple bird, perfuriona, in the Septuagint Version of Leviticus 11.18. And, and Deuteronomy 14.16, and, and I know this is a long digression to make a small point, but I think it's in part in, important. In Deuteronomy 14.16, where we see swan again in English, we still see red shank in, in the Geneva Bible, and in the Septuagint, it says ibis in Greek. 
So the Septuagint translators weren't even consistent with their translations of the Greek word tanshemeth. And if they didn't know in the third century BC what this what bird this tanshemeth, this Hebrew word described, then it's evident the English translators couldn't have known. And that's why some of them translated it as red shank and others as swan. <laughs> and, and in the North American Standard Bible, in Deuteronomy, it's white owl. But the Septuagint translators thought it described a, a purple bird, at least in one place, and an ibis in another. So they couldn't make their minds up. That that's um okay. So sometimes if you're translating and you can't determine what a word means, you might just transliterate that noun into English, right? If I was translating the Hebrew Old Testament, from these sources, there's no way what I'm ever gonna know that I'm ever gonna know what kind of bird a tanshemeth is. So if I was going to be honest with myself, I would just write tanshemeth in English, the tanshemeth, because that's what it is, because I don't know what kind of bird it is in English or in Greek. Is it a purple bird or is it an ibis? And, and what, what if both Septuagint translators were wrong? What if it wasn't either? So, it's, it, so what I'm saying is in an instance like that, it is probably better to invent a new English word in order to transliterate the Hebrew word into English and just write tanshemeth. It's better than going into some sort of error because I know people for generations that have believed that, that duck-footed animals, web-footed birds are unclean because swan appears in a list of unclean birds in Leviticus. But what if swan don't belong there? I know people today that won't eat duck because the only way they could imagine that swan are unclean is because they have webbed feet, so they don't eat duck. Or geese that have webbed feet, they don't eat them because they think they're unclean. But are they really unclean just because they have webbed feet? Or is swan an inaccuracy? So your point was they didn't have to do that for nation. They could have just put nation rather than invent this word Gentile. Right, because the inventing the word Gentile leads to a whole bunch of misunderstandings when the original Hebrew word goy simply means nation, and the original Greek word ethnos simply means nation. And instead, they brought this Latin word into English and they gave it a definition which is not the Latin meaning, which does not reflect the Latin meaning. So they created a lie. And in fact, the word Gentile appears in scripture in the King James Version maybe 130 times. So they created 130 lies is what they did. They lied 130 times. They could have just wrote nation. Okay, I think it might be 150 times. I don't remember. It's translated as Gentiles 130 times, either ethnos or goy. Okay, Genesis chapter 17, verse 4. 
as for me. Now, this is Yahweh God speaking to Abraham, and this is the some of, they're not the earliest. The earliest are in Genesis chapters 12 and 15. These are some of the early promises made to Abraham and the covenant that Yahweh is making with Abraham. As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Now, that term is goy. It, it's goyim. Now, in, in the Septuagint, it's ethnos. So, if ethnos refers to the promised seed of Abraham, which would be many nations, then how do Liddell and Scott define ethnos as non-Jews in the Septuagint, as they specifically said? In the Septuagint, non-Jews. And that's not a full definition. Yes, yeah, sometimes in the Septuagint, it refers to nations of people that are not of Israel. But just as often in the Septuagint, it's referring to promises made to Israel that their seed would become many nations. So they're being dishonest in their definition because it's not complete. It's a lie by omission. Brown Driver Briggs is more honest in their definition of the Hebrew word goy than Liddell and Scott were of the Greek word Latin, of the Greek word ethnos. So, this is Genesis 17, 4. As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many goyim, or nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. Now, Abba means father in Hebrew, and Am means a people. It, it's a different word in, in Hebrew than Goy, but it's a synonym. It, Am is a people or a, or a nation. So, Abraham it is basically father of nations with an article inserted, basically, father of nations, Abraham. For a father of many nations, Goyim, this is Genesis 17, 5, for a father of many Goyim, or nations, have I made thee. And I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and I will make Goyim, or nations, of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. Now, now, if we were subjective in our translation and wanted to just stick the word Gentiles where we see that word goyim, just like the King James Version did, but they didn't do it here. As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many Gentiles. Neither shall thy name be any more called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham, for a father of many Gentiles have I made thee. And I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and I will make Gentile, Gentiles of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. That's fair. If Goy is translated Gentile 50 other times, then why can't we translate it as Gentile here? It's subjective. That's why we should just stick with the original meaning of the word Goy as nation wherever it appears.
and, and we'd be honest with ourselves and we'd be making an honest translation instead of making it nations where we think it suits us and Gentiles where we think it suits us. And that's subjective. And we're actually making lies out of scripture. Now, I don't. That's quite sneaky the way they did that, right? The way certain verses they made uh, nations and certain were Gentiles. Right. Now, now there, there are places where ethnos should be translated as heathen when it refers to people who are not of your nation and culture, right? And and they're foreign or 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 that they're like heathens to you. And the Greeks had that attitude, and and the Greeks used that word ethnos in that way, in that manner, on occasion. But those times that we do that in the New Testament is occasional and the context very clearly calls for it. But in my translation notes, I always explain that it, it, it's just the word for nations. So Genesis chapter 25, verse 23. And, and this is Yahweh God speaking to Rebecca, the wife of Isaac. And Yahweh said unto her, two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And here I must ask, because he's talking about Jacob and Esau, if the word goyim meant non-Jew, if the word Gentile meant non-Jew, why do we have here two Goyim are in thy womb, and one refers to Jacob, and another refers to Esau. Why did why didn't Yahweh tell Rebecca it using different terms that one nation and one Jew are in thy womb, or, or one nation and one Gentile are in thy womb? No, he said two Goyim. So how does Goyim mean Gentiles? Why didn't, he, why didn't the translators write, two Gentiles are in thy womb? It, it's ridiculous to translate this word as nation in so many places and then as Goyim in others. Or, or as Gentile in others. It, it makes lies, Goyim. As Gentile in others and as nations in, in others where, where, where it suits them. And this word Gentile isn't even an English word. So it doesn't belong in scripture. It doesn't belong in English translations of scripture. It should have been left behind in Latin. And, and they're not translating from Latin. If you're not translating from Latin, I, I mean, if I'm translating from Hebrew and I see this word Tanshemeth and I don't know what it is, I might write Tanshemeth in English letters because I don't want to guess. And if I guess... I might mislead someone like those people today that don't eat ducks because they guessed at what a tanshemeth was when they made the King James Version. So they misled these people that don't eat ducks because they want a clean diet. They misled them. Okay. They're doing the same thing with the word Gentile. They're misleading people where the word only means nations. And, and they're not translating the word for nation consistently into Gentile, only where it suits them. 
So it's a lie. Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. Rejoice, O ye nations, and, and that's Goyim, with his people in the King James. And, and the North American Standard Bible does the same thing, and that's a lie. It's a lie because with is not in the original Hebrew. There is no with in the original Hebrew. It should be rejoice, O ye nations, his people. That's what it should be. The nations is a reference to the tribes of Israel in this Song of Moses in, in the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And Moses is telling them to rejoice. It's not nations of other races plus Israel. And when they put with, they injected it into the, it's in italics in the King James. It's in italics in the North American Standard Bible. That is an admission that they added the word to the verse, that it's not part of the original. So it should be simply rejoice, O ye nations, his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. So if these nations really aren't nations of Israel, and the translators indicate that where they wrote that word, where they added that word with to the text, why didn't it say in English, rejoice, O ye Gentiles, with his people? Why didn't they write that? So they're not even honest with themselves in the application of the word Gentile in the Old Testament. Now from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul of Tarsus writing, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant. That means I do not wish that you should be ignorant. How that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Paul was not addressing Jews there. He was addressing Corinthians. He told the Corinthians that their ancestors were with Moses in the Exodus, just as his own, where he said, all our fathers. And we have already established here, in, in earlier presentations in this, in this series, exactly how that was true as the Corinthians were Dorian Greeks, and the Dorians had come from the ancient Israelites. So, a little further on in that same chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul makes a statement concerning the surrounding nations. And I'm going to admit a parenthetical remark which obscures his intent in verse 19. I'm going to admit, omit that remark because it's a digression and simply quote verses 18 and 20, behold, Israel after the flesh. He's not talking about Jews because Jews, the Judeans and Greek are not worshiping pagan idols at this time. Behold, Israel after the flesh, are they, are not they which eat of the sacrifices, partakers of the altar. But I say, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that you should have fellowship with devils. Now, who's 
making these pagan sacrifices. Not the Jews, the Gentiles. And Paul is telling us that those Gentiles, the word only means nations, those Gentiles are Israel after the flesh. That phrase, Israel after the flesh, means in Greek, Israel according to the flesh. The real Israel and not the Jews in Palestine. Paul said, Paul used the same phrase in Romans chapter 9, where he said that he only prayed for his kinsmen after the flesh, his kinsmen according to the flesh, his real kinsmen, because he went on to say, not all of them in Israel are of Israel, and went on to compare Jacob and Esau. In other words, the Edomites are not Israel after the flesh, Israel according to the flesh. That's the way he used the same term in Romans chapter 9. We have to apply the same method of understanding to that term here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Israel after the flesh means Israel according to the flesh, the real Israel and not the Jews in Palestine. Although some of the Judeans were also Israelites, many of them weren't. The things which the nations, not so-called Gentiles, the things which the nations which are Israel according to the flesh, the things which the nation sacrificed, they sacrificed to devils as the ancient Israelites were pagans when they departed to settle abroad. That these so-called Gentiles were actually the nations which had come of Israel according to the promises of God is revealed in Paul's epistle to the Romans. So we'll move on to Romans. From Romans chapter 4. What shall we say that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, has found? Now, the text in the majority of older manuscripts doesn't have father there. It has forefather. And in, in the majority text, in the manuscripts of the Textus Receptus and, and the other majority text manuscripts, it was changed to father. But its father in the Codex Beze, which is a 5th century Greek codex, with a lot of differences from the readings of the older Greek codexes, of the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus, the, the Codex Beze has um, many innovations in it. Many, I mean countless, and thousands of innovations in it. So, not just mistakes, but actual innovations. So, so, forefather is the reading there in most of the older manuscripts. Then, after comparing the circumcision and the uncircumcision in that chapter, because the Israelites scattered abroad did not maintain the practice of circumcision, Paul continues, and he says in, in verse 13, for the promise that he, meaning Abraham, should be the heir of the world which actually did happen in, in history that could be established, was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Therefore, it is of faith, and I'm skipping to verse 16, therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace or favor. To the end, the promise might be sure, the promise which was made to Abraham that he would be heir of the world, the promise might be sure to all the seed. 
not to that only which is of the law, meaning the Judeans in Palestine that kept the law, but also to that which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now Paul is about to describe the faith of Abraham. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Now, how did he make those nations? Paul goes on to explain that here. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickens the dead and calls those things which be not, meaning he names things that don't yet exist, calls those things which be not as though they were. In other words, God, being God, can name things that will exist that don't yet exist. And, and here, Paul is applying that to the promise to Abraham, I have made thee a father of many nations, because those nations didn't yet exist when those words were spoken. So what did Abraham believe? Abraham believed that his seed, his offspring, would become many nations. Those nations did not yet exist, for which reason Paul added in the very next verse that God calls, in, in that very last verse that we covered, I'm sorry, that God calls those things which be not as though they were, because those nations didn't exist yet, but they would come to exist. And that is the faith of Abraham as it is defined by Paul of Tarsus here. When the promise was made to Abraham, those nations did not yet exist because they would come out of Abraham's loins. So Paul concludes in the next verse, verse 18, speaking of Abraham, who against hope, because he couldn't imagine how at 99 years old he could have a son, his wife being 90, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. So what is the seed of the promise? The seed of the promise are the nations which were promised to come from Abraham's loins. And that is what Paul is teaching in his bringing of Christianity to those nations that they, the Romans, who had the truth of God and turned it into a lie, the Corinthians, whose ancestors were with Moses in the Exodus, Paul is teaching that those nations to whom he brought the gospel are the descendants of Abraham from his seed. So that leads us to the next facet of our discussion here. It, is it physical seed or is it spiritual seed? What is the seed of the promise? The concept, and, and, and that begins in the gospel, right? Through an insincere or dishonest interpretation of some of the parables of Christ. But the parables of Christ don't change the promises of God. You cannot force Jesus Christ being the Word made flesh. You cannot interpret anything he said in a manner which forces him to deny himself or forces him to contradict himself. You can't do that. That's not honest. If there's another possible interpretation, then you have to follow that other possible interpretation if it's 
if it does not force him to contradict himself. You start interpreting and translating men in a way that forces them to contradict themselves when it's possible that they did not contradict themselves. Who's the hypocrite? You or the person you're translating? You're the hypocrite. If you force me to, to if you want to translate um, things that I say into another language and you force me to contradict myself, then you're being the hypocrite. So the translators are hypocrites, but God isn't a hypocrite. Paul said in, in Galatians and in Hebrews that his changes are immutable, that he cannot lie, that the covenant is immutable, that it cannot be added to by men. Jesus Christ yesterday, today, and forever, as Paul said in the epistle to the Hebrews. So we can't change the doctrines of the apostles to suit our needs. And, and the need of, of these 4th century Romans and, and these 4th century interpreters of Scripture who believed in replacement theology because they didn't understand Paul and they didn't understand the covenants of God and they didn't understand the ancient history and, and scatterings of Israel. Their need was universalism. They needed it. So they forced it into their translations and interpretations of Scripture. Yeah, and you can see if you make one lie that like Gentiles, then you have to start making other lies as well to try and make the Bible make sense with the lies, right? Absolutely. And this is where we get physical seed has to become spiritual seed because if they're not the Israelites and Christianity is for them, then it has to be spiritual, right? Right, but it's very clear in Paul that he's teaching physical seed, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken. If you really want to understand that which was spoken, go back to Genesis chapter 12, go back to Genesis chapter 15, go back to Genesis chapter 17, and then go back to Genesis chapter 35, because it's all repeated to Jacob that the promises to Abraham are, are summarized by God and repeated to Jacob because he was the heir of that promise, according to his father Isaac, that if Jacob married a woman of his own kin, that he would inherit the promises given to Abraham instead of Esau. And that's those words are attributed explicitly to Isaac. I, I believe it in... Um, I believe that's in Genesis chapter 28. That's in Genesis chapter 28, right at the beginning. And in, in the King James Version, because Esau had married the daughters of Heth, that's right at the very end of Genesis chapter 27. For that reason, because the Hittites, not because they were pagans, but because they were of a corrupted race, those, the, those Hittites, the daughters of Heth, who were a branch of the Canaanites. Because the daughters of Heth were a corrupted race, and, and the life of Jacob proves that, because the church will say it's religious, that they were pagans. Well, guess what? Jacob went to Padanaram and got women of his own race, and they were, re they were pagans too. So it couldn't have been because of religion. It had to be because of race that Jacob was sent uh, to Padanaram to get a wife. 
And even Abraham's family was pagan, right? <laughs> yes, according to the book of Joshua, all of Abraham's ancestors were pagan. So the reason that Jacob got a wife at Padanaram was not a religious reason. That's a lie. It was a racial reason that he wouldn't marry Hittites like Esau did. And Paul of Tarsus, and we'll discuss this later, but Paul of Tarsus substantiates that in chapter 12 of his epistle to the Hebrews, where he called Esau a profane man and a fornicator. And both words indicate that he was sexually incontinent. And and Bill, um, that, that's quite far he traveled, right, to get Rachel. Um, I, I don't know the exact location where uh, Isaac was in Canaan, but to go all the way up to Pandanaram to find um, Laban, that, that's a good several hundred miles, right? right to make sure a... that you have a pure white wife. It, it was very important. And, if you and go in those that days, a, a trip... A journey of a couple of hundred miles. It was at least a couple of hundred miles. It, you're going from Palestine to the far northern portion of what's known today as Syria. So that that's at least a couple of hundred miles. It might be a little more, uh, 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 several hundred. I, I don't really know. I, I, it's been a long time since I've measured it. I know it's 200 miles to Haran, so it's more than 200 miles because. Padanaram was north of Haran. So to go from there, from, from the land of Canaan to the land of Padanaram, was actually a risky journey for, for any number of men at that time. It, it was like the Wild West. It, it, there was no law. There are no cops. There's all sorts of roving tribes that regularly looted and pillaged other people. That was very common in the ancient world. So it's a risk. Abraham's servant made that same journey to get a wife for Isaac. And he made it bringing gifts to, to, the, to the parents of that prospective wife. And he brought a wife home to, to the land of Canaan for Isaac from Padanaram. And Jacob was sent back to that same place to go get a wife. And Jacob was traveling alone where Abraham's servant probably had other men and weapons and things like that with him. A according to the scriptures, it, it seems that Jacob went along. Arise yeah, at least they could um, know the genealogy of um, Laban and Rachel, right? They could be 100% sure that they were white and of the same race. Right. Whilst all these other surrounding tribes, they could just lie to them and say, oh, yeah, we're white, but, but they wouldn't have that guarantee. Right. And this is a significant example in scripture. While Jacob's sons had married white women of other nations, for the most part, I mean, Judah did take a Canaanite wife at one point and her children were ultimately rejected. But while Jacob's sons married white women of other nations, the ideal is set right here in Genesis chapter 28. And, and we can't imagine that Jacob allowed his sons to regularly transgress that ideal. That's why Judah was made an example of with his Canaanite wife. But the others weren't made examples of in later scriptures. So the scriptures are consistent, even if we don't understand them all perfectly.
So Jacob was told, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, thy mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, thy mother's brother. And God Almighty be with thee, and make thee fruitful, and multiply thee, that thou mayest be a multitude of people, and give thee the blessing of Abraham to thee. So, so that is in that that is consistent with that fulfillment that Abraham's seed would become many nations, and also shows the importance of that seed all being of the same race, of the same general Adamic race at least, and not being corrupted with the Canaanites who were mixed with Rephaim and Kenites and, and other races that can't even be identified. As we've also explained earlier in this series of presentations. So is it physical seed or is it spiritual seed? The concept of the word of God in the minds of men as seed comes in part from the abuse of a parable. And I'm going to say abuse of a parable. But the interpretation of the parable cannot change the promises of God. So if your interpretation is in conflict with the promises, then you must change your interpretation of the parable. And, and I'm going to demonstrate that. This parable of the sower is found in Matthew chapter 3. And I'll read from verse 3. This is Christ speaking to the multitude in parables. And he spoke many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow, and when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places, where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up, because they had no deepness of earth, and when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns. Jews. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But others fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Now, there is no explanation of this parable as it was recorded in Matthew, but it was recorded in Luke with an explanation. So I'll read the explanation of the parable from Luke. And he said, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others, and Christ is speaking to his disciples at this point, but to others that seeing in parables, that seeing they might not see and hearing they might not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Does that mean the seed is always the word of God in every parable or in every allegory? That would be ridiculous if we went back to the Old Testament and turned the, the promise of seed into the word of God. Everywhere where seed is mentioned, how does the word of God come out of Abraham's loins? I mean, is God a pervert that he has to make um, sexual analogies about the spread of the gospel? That would be ridiculous. But if you're going to insist that seed in the New Testament is always the word of God, then there's going to be a serious problem because where it cites 
those Old Testament scriptures that Abraham's seed would become many nations, then you have to imagine that Abraham's, that the word of God came out of Abraham's loins. And, and, and when you take that and apply it evenly across all those promises, you're going to run into some serious problems. The seed in this parable is the word of God. Those by the wayside are they that hear. Then cometh the devil and take away the word out of their hearts. Now in Mark 4, there's also this explanation, and it says, then cometh Satan instead of then cometh the devil. And takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. They on the rock are they which, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these having no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. Now, if they don't have root, that means that they're not from the tree which should be receiving the word of God. But now I'm digressing again. And that which fell among thorns are they, which when they have heard, go forth, and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to perfection. But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. So, in that parable of the sower, the distribution of the word of the gospel is likened to seed. But that does not make the seed of the promises spiritual. In fact, at least 30 years after Christ gave us that parable, at a time when Paul must have been familiar with Luke's gospel, he wrote in chapter 9 of his epistle to the Romans that they, which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. He had already defined the promise in Romans chapter 4 where he wrote that Abraham believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. So we see Paul of Tarsus, who must have read Luke's gospel. This is the epistle to the Romans, which was written in probably 57 AD, 30 years after Christ gave that, Christ gave that parable and the explanation of it. And Paul did not interpret it like the denominational churches of today interpret it. Otherwise, he would not have been able to say in Romans that the children of the promise are counted for the seed, where he referred to that children of the promises to Abraham, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And he also, in Romans chapter 9, if that's not literal enough for you, he also, in Romans chapter 9, referred to the promises to Sarah and, and to, to Rebecca, to Rebecca, that two nations are in my womb. And one of those nations are vessels of mercy, and the other are vessels of destruction, referring to Jacob and Esau. So if you don't get that the cedar children by the first statement, you better by the second, or you're just being dense and purposely clinging to the lies of the universalist church.
the churches, the denominational churches teach that somehow many nations became Abraham's seed. But that which was spoken, as Paul said, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. That which was spoken is that Abraham's seed would become many nations, not that many nations would become his seed. That's a lie. Therefore, the seed cannot be spiritual, but physical. From Abraham's own loins, according to that same promise. So now, in another parable from that same chapter of Matthew, we will see that seed are indeed physical children, not just believers and unbelievers. I don't know if you have anything to add. Yeah, I was going to say um, Yahweh even like it's almost like he um, anticipates this and he makes an example with Abraham where Abraham gets his greatest and most loyal servant, Eliza, and says, well, if I'm not going to, you know, appears all these decades, I'm not producing children. Uh, how about I just adopt, you know, this, this um, young man, uh, he's very loyal, uh, let, let him be my seed. And Yahweh explicitly says, no, it will be come out of your loins. You know, so it has to be from his seed, right? There's no adoption here. Absolutely. And, and the, the example of Eleazar, it is a perfect example with, with which to refute that idea of, of Judeo-Christianity. And, and I actually thought about putting it into this, but thought, well, I have enough digressions now. But no, the, <laughs> the, the example of Eleazar is the best example that the seed is physical because if Abraham himself could not get Yahweh to substitute another man of his own race and his own household for his seed, then how the hell do these denominational churches think that they could get Yahweh to accept substitutions for Abraham's seed? If is Abraham... Um, that, Eliza, the same one who is sent to find a wife for um, his son, Isaac? The same yeah. servant, sorry. That That is... Um, probably true because that was Abraham's most trusted servant. So I, I would believe, yes, that is true, that it probably is the same man, the same servant. So he, he did play a part in choosing the seed at least, right? <laughs> um, well, well, right. And, and, and that might have some prophetic significance, but somehow I don't think it's important. I, I honestly don't. But, but that servant was Abraham's most trusted servant. He was a man of his own house, of his own um, wider clan, let's put it that way. If you go back and, and actually see whom it was that Abraham had taken from Haran to, to the land of Canaan with him, he only took people of his own wider community and kindred. And, and he had 300 and something men with him alone just to fight against the kings of Canaan. And I believe that's in Genesis chapter 13, perhaps. So, so he, he certainly had a significant number of people with him. 
And he tried to take the most trusted of those people from his own house and make that his seed because he could not see himself having children at 99 years old. He didn't, he, he believed God that he would have seed, but he was skeptical about how it would happen. So he thought that a next of kin or a man of close kin would be good enough. And, and God said, no, not even that's good enough. Your heir must come from your own loins. And Sarah, at 90 years old, had a child. And that's the extent to which Yahweh God will go to keep his promise to Abraham that his heirs will be of his own loins. And the churches think they could change that? Why did God go to that great extent and make, which Paul talks about, and, and, and exalts Yahweh for and, and celebrates in Romans chapter 9. Why would God go to that extent if he was suddenly going to change his mind and settle for any common Gentile 2,000 years later? And, and that shows the dishonesty and, and the deception in the universalist translations of Scripture that they turn God into a liar, a hypocrite, and a God that changes his mind on a whim. If we want to believe that our God changes his mind on a whim, then do we really believe in God? Matthew chapter 13, back to Matthew, same chapter, same um, incident where Christ is speaking to the same people. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like an unknown man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, in other words, there's other men around when this man's sowing good seed, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. You won't really notice the tares in the field of wheat until that they are ripe for plucking, and, and then you see all these weeds, right? So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, did thou not sow good seed in thy field? From whence then has it tares? From where did the tares come from? And he said unto them, An enemy has done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, No. Lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them, because the wheat aren't quite ready to be harvested. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, you might take this parable alone and, and try to sort this into believers and unbelievers. But that's not how Christ explained it, and he himself explained it for us. So we cannot stop here and interpret this for ourselves. We have to let Christ interpret it for us. But first we read a statement from the next verse in, in I'm sorry, from a couple of verses later in Matthew. All these things, because he gave one more parable, all these things spoke Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable he spoke not unto them, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. 
I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. So the explanation we are about to read was not necessarily revealed in the Old Testament scriptures, or these things could not have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. So from further on in Matthew chapter 13, verse 36, then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house and his disciples came unto him saying, declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. So this indicates that what he is about to explain is being done in plain meaning, not in parables or allegory. If Christ had used allegory in his explanation, then he would not truly be explaining the meaning of the parable as the apostles had requested. Instead, he would just be reciting another parable. They might look at him and say, what kind of answer is that? Or, or how do we understand that? But they asked for an explanation, and this is the explanation which he had given, continuing from Matthew chapter 13, verse 37. He answered and said unto them, now he's speaking in plain language because he's explaining the parable for them. He that sows the good seed is the son of man. And of course, as Paul of Tarsus later says in the scripture, Yahweh God created all things through him and by him and on account of him, Jesus Christ being the incarnation of Yahweh God. He that sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in a fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. As the Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire, there shall be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who has ears to hear, let him hear. So this being an explanation of the allegories of the wheat and the tares. These are the terms which Christ was using to explain their allegories and therefore their plain meanings must be accepted. The seed are the children of God. In Luke chapter 3, the apostle records that Adam is the son of God. And in Deuteronomy chapter 14, as well as several places in Isaiah and other prophets, the children of Israel are said to be the children of God. The enemy that sowed the tares is the devil. In John chapter 8, calling his opponents the children of the devil, Christ was referring to Cain and the Edomites of Jerusalem that can be traced back to Cain through the Old Testament. Cain is the only one who was a murderer from the beginning. And the Edomites and the Canaanites can all be traced back in part to Cain and in other parts to the Rephaim, which are the fallen angels and other unidentified tribes.
the people that troubled Isaac and Rebekah, which had compelled Isaac to send Jacob to Padanaram for a wife in the first place. Right. And, um, you know, if the Tars look like wheats and they're hard to distinguish, then you would have to look, you, you know, the Israelites would have to have another race that looks very similar to them and is difficult to distinguish. And it's, this fits perfectly with the white Adamites and, and Jews, right? The, these slightly Arab-looking people, these these mongrels, these these hybrids. That that's the perfect explanation. That the same thing that happens to us all throughout time and throughout all our civilizations, right? Absolutely. And and so while seed is sometimes used as an allegory for the word of God, and and that is the case earlier in this chapter of Matthew, seed. Also, and, and in, in this parable, it's not seed that, that's really being used to describe the children of Israel. It's wheat and tares which are being used to describe two distinct people with distinct origins, the children of God and the children of the devil. So the seed which the sower sowed in the field is only the wheat in this parable, which are the children of God. The seed which the devil sowed in to the field are the tares. Now that doesn't mean the tares really come from the devil, not the physical tares, that the, the, the um, botanical tares. They don't necessarily come from the devil. They're only being used as an allegory to represent why there are evil people or evil plants among the good people or among the wheat. And we find out who those people are in the explanation to the parable. And it must be accepted literally because Christ is explaining an allegory. He's not giving another parable. He's explaining, as the apostles had requested, what he said in the parable. So the devil has children and God has children. And that's actually the story right from Genesis chapter 3. And that accounts for the presence of the Nephilim, the fallen ones in Genesis chapter 6. And, and I think in I think it's Numbers chapter 13, where they're mentioned again, the, the Nephilim. Numbers chapter 13, yes. And, and sometimes the word's translated giants, but sometimes another word, rephaim, is translated giants. But that explains how there are fallen ones, and, and that's revealed in the Revelation. And then the apostles Jude and Peter, in, in different language. Okay. There's a lot of digressions, but a lot of digressions are necessary. These words, fornication and adultery. And, and this, well, we're not going to get through all of this part, proof 42, this evening. But we we'll, we'll, we should discuss fornication and adultery and finish the rest of this proof next week. This might be a four-hour proof. <laughs> I'm being honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, that, yeah. First of all, you'd have to say if we're all from Adam, then would it really matter if you know? Um, uh, sorry, Esau just went and find a Canaanite wife. Why would it matter if we're all from Adam? Why would there be laws of fornication and adultery? And, and here we can explain what they truly mean. And you must understand that there are clearly other races outside Adam. 
and that we're white and non-whites are not our race, right? Well, well, right, absolutely. And and uh, okay, why was it so important? Why was it okay, right, for for the um, sons of Israel to marry pagans, for Jacob to marry two women? that were pagans. They were raised as pagans in the home of Laban. And if you go back and read that story in Genesis, there was a, a huge point made in that story about them being pagans because Rachel had taken the gods from her father's house and hid them away in her belongings and left with Leah and, and the other women and the children along with Jacob, to go to the land of Canaan. So, Laban realized, probably a couple of days later, that the household gods were missing. And he pursued Jacob, thinking that Jacob took the household gods. But Jacob didn't take them. And they couldn't locate them. Rachel had them stashed pretty good. They couldn't locate them. They probably didn't suspect Rachel. But Laban had no choice but to believe Jacob when he honestly said that he didn't take them. So that's why they made a covenant and set a pillar that Jacob would never um, come north of the pillar to do him harm. Because having the household gods also had other significances in the ancient world because the heir of the estate would possess the household gods, and Laban wanted to make sure that Jacob didn't dispossess his sons, right? He was trying to make sure that his inheritance would go to his sons. So that's a deeper story that's not explicit in the text, but it's very clear that Rachel and Leah had taken Laban's household gods with them. They were pagans. They weren't Christians, that they didn't understand Yahweh, the God of Israel. They didn't understand, even Jacob had an imperfect understanding. He only knew that this God had, had watched over his grandfather and his father and brought them to the land of Canaan and made promises to them. That's all Jacob knew. He didn't know much more than that. Abraham didn't have, um, not, not by any indication in Genesis did Abraham have copies of ancient scripture to understand God. He didn't have that. That's not really written, written down in writing until Moses, four generations after Abraham. No, I'm sorry, four generations after Jacob, I believe. So, so we can't imagine that there's a difference between pagans and non-pagans as we view it back in the days of Abraham. This certainly wasn't. It says in Joshua that all their fathers on the other side of the flood, I, I believe it's Joshua chapter 25, perhaps, that all their, I'm sorry, Joshua chapter 24, and Joshua said unto all the people, thus saith Yahweh the God of Israel, your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time. And that where it says flood there, it's not talking about the flood of Noah. It's talking about the Euphrates River, which was often just called the flood and, and should have been translated the river because that's what the word means in today's language. Um, every river has its sources in, in a flood, right? In, in, in the flooding of, of 
forest lands and plains that trickle down the rainwater finds the lowest point and starts a river. That's how rivers start, right? So your fathers dwelt on the other side of the Euphrates River in old time. Haran was north of the Euphrates. Even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. They were pagans. And I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. So they were all pagans. Nobody up to the time of Abraham could claim not to be what we consider a pagan. At least not since the days of Noah's flood. They were all pagans. They all went off into paganism. And Paul of Tarsus explains that that God let all the nations go their way to see if they would seek him. And of course, none of them did. So he called Abraham. This leads us to uh, th this discussion of, of seed and, and the races, the children of God, the children of the devil, leads to a discussion of fornication and adultery. And the Apostle Jude, in his one short epistle, referred to the angels that sinned, and then to Sodom and Gomorrah and said that they had given themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. And where the word for strange in that passage, the word for strange in that passage of the King James Version is heteros. Heteros means different. That's all it means. It means something other than or something different from another thing that you're referring to. So, in English today, we have the term heterosexual, which means that you go after a different gender of person than your own. So there's only two genders in reality, right? Male and female. So if you're heterosexual, a heterosexual male in English, that means that you prefer to sleep with women, right? Of the other sex. Well, that's heterosarca, or heterosarche, however the Greek term is, it is written in that passage. Sarx is flesh. Sarx that is heteros is a different flesh than your own. That's race mixing. The sin of the angels is clearly race mixing with the daughters of Adam in Genesis chapter 6. Where Adam had said in Genesis chapter 2 that a wife should be flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. In Genesis chapter 6, those Nephilim or fallen ones were not of the same flesh as Adam. That's the chasing after of different flesh that Jude refers to in Jude verse 6. So we can safely conclude that the apostles of Christ considered race mixing to be a form of fornication. That's how Jude describes it and defines it. And Paul of Tarsus exhibited that same meaning of the word in Hebrews chapter 12, where he called Esau a fornicator. Esau couldn't inherit the birthright. Why? When we read the accounts of Jacob and Esau, which we just cited in, in Genesis chapter 26, 27, 28, Esau was a fornicator and that troubled his mother. His taking of Hittite wives caused his parents much grief. So Jacob inherited the blessing. 
Isaac didn't get it at first, and 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 Rebecca had to hook it up, had had to plan it. But Jacob got the blessing, and Isaac realized that Rebecca was right. That's why he sent Jacob to Padanaram and told him that if he took a wife of his own people, he would inherit the blessings of Abraham. Paul exhibited that same meaning of the word fornication once again in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in reference to the incident at Baal Peor. In 1 Corinthians 10, do not commit fornication as your fathers had done, and, and in one day, 24,000 of them had fallen. That's a direct reference to what happened in Numbers chapters 24 and 25, where the children of Israel joined themselves to the daughters of Moab. And, and, and that means that they were having sex with the daughters of Moab because the cults of Baal were, were fertility cults. And, and the fertility cults of the ancient pagan world, that's where people got married at the altar. That's what marriage at the altar was really about. The Hebrew term, which means fornication, is also often translated as whoredom or whoring in the Old Testament. Denominational pastors often protest today that fornication is sex without marriage. But that's a lie. In the Hebrew Old Testament, the act of having sex was the act of getting married. And we see that of both Isaac and Jacob in Genesis chapters 24 and 29. If you are having sex with a virgin, a woman that's a virgin, you are marrying her. If you're having sex, except in cases of divorce, if you're having sex with a woman who's not a virgin, you're committing adultery. Unless she can prove that she's divorced. In modern times, the official marriage licenses and wedding ceremonies in the church, in church, are perhaps not even 200 years old. It's only about 200 years ago that people started being forced to get marriage licenses. And it's only about 200 years ago that people got married in churches. Before then, people got married at home. The term adultery, which can mean to have sex with a woman who's married to another man, but the term adultery can also sometimes describe race mixing as it seems to do in the Ten Commandments. And there we read, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. And we also read, thou shalt not commit adultery. So the two commandments certainly must be describing two different sins. We can't assume that God's just, he only gave us 10 commandments, so how do we assume he's repeating himself? To the ancient Greeks, such as Strabo and Aristotle, and I have a link here to a program where, where I discuss this from, from the epistles of Paul, to the ancient Greeks, either moikaia, which is adultery in the New Testament, or pornaya and porne, which are terms meaning fornication in the New Testament, either set of those terms, moikaia and moikas, or, or pornaya and porne. Moikaya and Moikas are usually adultery. Adultery, Pornaya and Porne are usually fornication. Either set of terms 
in writers such as Strabo of Cappadocia or Aristotle the philosopher can be used to describe race mixing. They both, even though moikaya is also used of adultery in the sense of a man sleeping with another woman of the same race who's married to a different husband, it, can, it was still used of race mixing. And, and that's because moikaya or, or moikas, the root of those words is the verb, the Greek verb megnumi, and megnumi means to mix. And I believe that moikas came from megnumi, in, and, and moikas means adultery, in the sense of mixing or confusing the bloodline. So if a man was sleeping with your wife, and she got pregnant and had a son, if that was his, but it was born in your house and had your name, that mixes or confuses the bloodline, does it not? So in, in, in that sense, that term for adultery by the ancient Greeks was used both of um, community adultery, where, where you slept with each other's wives and, and confused the bloodline, or of race mixing. Because that also mixes the blood and confuses the bloodline. And you even have um, to adulterate the blood, right? That is the same as uh, adulterate. It shows that there's foreign blood in the bloodline if you adulterate the blood. Right. That term adulterate comes from the same word for adultery and, and refers to something that is mixed or spurious because it's not really what it's supposed to be. Which could also be a bastard. The, the church wants to claim that, that people born out of wedlock are bastards, and that's a lie. That's not the meaning of a bastard. It, it's a bastard, in, in Greek, the word is nathos, and in Greek, the, the word nathos is an antonym to the word genesios, and genesios is related to the word genea, which is race, and genesios is generally interpreted as authentic, but it really means of an authentic kind, because it's related to that word genea, which is race. So something authentic is something that's actually of a particular kind, like a, a, um, like a horse, instead of a, a, a mixture of a horse and a donkey, which is a mule. A mule is nothus, it's a bastard. A horse and a donkey are genesios, meaning they are authentic. They are their own self-perpetuating species, right? So when you mix a horse and a donkey, you end up with a bastard. If you mix a black person, I'll call them, and a white person, you end up with the same thing, a mulatto. Mulatto, that comes from the same concept as mule, something that's mixed between two different species or kinds. So mixed Negroes, even when I was a young man, were still called mulattoes because they were mules. A hundred years ago, we understood this. How come today we don't understand this any longer? When I Jeez. say... When, <coughs> I'm sorry. When I say we, I mean most people in general no longer understand this basic, simple concept. And um, also back to Judah, where he um, slept with his 
daughter-in-law, I guess we'd say, the twins inherited the bloodline, right? And all the Judah kings, including Christ, come from that. So according to the church, they'd all be bastards, right? The whole bloodline. But well, that's well, not right. true. And this is a serious example, which is is not ever mentioned explicitly in Scripture, but it's still a striking example that Judah, as a young man, and, and you know, he did the same thing that Esau did. But it's evident that Judah didn't suffer quite the same punishment for it because of the mercy which Yahweh God had on Jacob, his father, right? That Jacob was promised 12 tribes and he had 12 sons. So Judah went off and, and I, I, I'm guessing that he was incontinent as a young man. It seems that he was incontinent because Tamar, understood that if she dressed as a whore, she could bed Judah. She understood that if he didn't recognize her and dressed as a whore, which it might be that they covered their faces back then. It, it seems to be so that he wouldn't see who she was, that she dressed as a whore and bedded him because he was an incontinent man. He'd sleep with anybody. That seems to be the case. Otherwise, how did Tamar know that she could just stand out in the road and wait for Judah to pass and, and get him in bed? And she did that for a noble reason, because she was entitled to seed from him, because he withheld, two of, her, two of his sons died before she could have a child, and he withheld the third one. So that's why she did it. She had that entitlement. In the ancient world, a son was a woman's social security card a woman that raised a son had the understanding that when she was in her old age and could no longer work or do anything useful that the son would take care for her so she had that coming and she needed it because she didn't have any guarantee of being taken care of by any other sons that judah may have had she didn't have that. What would they care about her? Yeah, and she'd be older, so she wouldn't. There'd be no man who'd want to, um, you know, marry her once she got to old age. So, right. so, yeah, as you said, you really needed a son. So, without Tamar, there would be no legitimate tribe of Judah because Judah, it's not recorded anywhere that he had other children except with the Canaanite woman. So. Yahweh God put it in the heart of Tamar to go dress as a whore and, and land Judah and get him in bed. And she had Pharez and Zarah. And when Tamar was pregnant with Pharez and Zarah, it was important to the nursemaid to mark which one was born first. So that's the story behind the, the, the scarlet thread, right? Pharez was born first, in spite of the fact that Zara had the scarlet thread. So Pharez would be first in line ahead of Zara for any inheritance. Later on, in, in the um, after the Exodus and, and after the tribes of Judah, and all three of them were there, members of the descendants of Pharez, descendants of Zara, and descendants, descendants of the Canaanite son Shelah were all there in the Exodus 
the Shelahites were always with Judah. They were always attached to Judah. And that's mentioned later on in the historical books of Scripture. And that's also used to attribute that the Shelahites, the Canaanites in Judah, that's used to attribute the sins of Judah in later history. That those Canaanites were always there. And, and it's, it's mentioned in the prophets. It's not always mentioned explicitly, but it is there. So, Pharez and Zara become the evident heirs of, of Judah. And, and Shelah doesn't really inherit anything. If you read the scripture, the Shelahites have two towns in Judah. Now, in, in the King James Version, there's another mistranslation. And it says that they lived in plants and hedges. That's what it actually says. Plants and hedges. And, and I'm looking First Chronicles chapter 4, verse 23. These were the potters and those that dwelt among plants and hedges. And that's the, son, uh, the sons of Shelah, right? These are the potters and those that dwelt among plants and hedges. But those are mistranslations. They were actually two towns, Netaim and Gadara, which were in the south of Judah. So Plants and Hedges is a serious misunderstanding of, of the scripture. The, and, and, and there's a lot of little, little silly things in the King James Version just like that, which are um, indicative of the fact that the translators were not perfect that they were far from perfect. But that's another digression. Race is real. The descendants of Esau were all mixed from his Canaanite wives and from the Horites among whom he later dwelt, which were a branch of the Canaanites. Going back to chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, Paul had warned those people that on account of their being from Israel, they should not commit fornication as their fathers had, where 24,000 of them were slain. And that describes the event of Numbers chapters 24 and 25, where Israel had joined themselves to the daughters of Moab. Paul was telling the Corinthians that they should not race mix in that manner. That sort of race mixing, among other sexual crimes, was described as fornication. And of course, prostitution was a form of fornication. And that's what Jude called the going after of different flesh. That word strange in the King James Version meaning different. And Christ himself had warned in Revelation chapter 2 that he would kill the children of fornicators. Why would Jesus kill the children if they were just pagans? No, he would kill the children if they were born out of Church, what, what if they didn't have a Catholic priest marry their parents? Are you kidding me? Because they weren't married in a church? Nobody got married in a church for the first 17, 1800 years of Christianity. In Hebrews chapter 12, Paul called Esau a fornicator, and there were no churches. So how do they explain that? There was no Roman Catholic Church in 1800 BC when Esau committed fornication. So how do they explain that? Isaac got married in his mother's tent, not in the church. A fornicator 
is a race mixer and a bastard is a mule is a person of mixed race. A novice that is not Genesios, that is not an authentic specimen of the race. So Esau could never recover the birthright that should have been his. This message is clear. Mix your race and you lose your birthright. That's the message of Genesis chapters 27 and 28. It is often contested that the Bible does not condemn race mixing, but there it is in all of these passages, although it is called fornication. Then it is contested that the Bible does not speak of race, but it certainly does. However, in the King James English, the word for race is translated as generation. And, and that's where we're going to have to pick up when we come back next week. Yeah, that's brilliant. If these terms were all translated properly in our modern vernacular, because generation may have meant race to the King James to, to the English speakers of the King James Bible. And, and I, I might get into that as a digression next week. But if these terms were all translated properly in modern vernacular, then we wouldn't be so confused about race mixing and, and Christianity. And, and these denominational churches would not get by with their universalism. They would not be able to marry your daughter to a nigger. Exactly. Everyone would be Christian identity because more people would simply understand the truth of the Bible, which is Christian identity, right? Absolutely. Well, we'll leave it here. And thank you for being here. Praise Yahweh. Yeah, thanks. And we'll continue with the mistranslations next week. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, family. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European people. Thank you.